The Incomparable Podcast, number 97, July 2012. Welcome back to another episode of The Incomparable. I'm Glenn Fleischman, substituting for Jason Snell, who is indisposed. He's been disposed of somewhere in the Pacific Northwest right now. And this week we're talking about Futurama, the animated TV series that has more lives than any program, I believe, ever on television. Uh, it's a TV show that's one of the geekiest, most scientifically accurate programs uh, of fiction ever broadcast. And I have with me tonight three guests to talk about the show. Andy Notko. You know Andy Notko. It's a great guy. It's a Mac guy. We love him. He's on many podcasts. You hear him on Mac Break Weekly. Is that right? That's um, true. On, you hear him on The Incomparable, you hear him on Boing Boing's Week podcast, and, and Andy runs the uh, Celestial, excuse me, the Celestial Waste of, I'm saying the site wrong, a Celestial <laughs> the, Waste of Time. The Celestial Waste of Bandwidth, because it's located on the internet where bandwidth is, <laughs> we used to be at one point uh, important. No longer finite. So thank you, Andy, for joining us. And uh, also have Dean Putney, Dean Putney of Boing Boing. The code wrangler there, responsible for its back end. Dean, welcome to the incomparable. Hello, thank you. And Dean has recently completed watching Futurama back to front, so he can talk in depth about anything that we've forgotten. I haven't watched this more recently. And then also have Jonathan Seff, who is a first timer on the incomparable. John is the executive editor at a funny publication that writes about shiny objects um, that some people buy that are aluminum and pretty. Hi, John. Bite my shiny metal Mac. Bite my shiny metal neck. That's right. So thanks for being on, everybody. And um, so the, the Futurama, it was funny. It's a, I wanted to think it was an acquired taste that um, when I first found out about the show, I thought I was the only one watching. And it turned out that was sort of true at one point. You know, Futurama has this crazy history of being on the air. Um, it comes from, for listeners who don't know the show, um, and now you'll have a chance to explore it, it's has had several seasons now, but those seasons have been broken up in a sort of ridiculous way. It was an outgrowth of, uh, in some ways, of The Simpsons. It's co-created by Matt Groening, a Simpsons creator, and one of the longtime uh, writers and showrunners, David Cohen, David X. Cohen, X, not his real middle name, uh, who um, came up with this notion. Uh, Matt backed it, and they created this spinoff show that was supposed to run around the same time as The Simpsons on the Fox television network. Um, in the end, Fox... For some reason, they had this strange antipathy for the show. It, not that it, the show did poorly, but they liked to move it around a lot. So it first aired from 1999 to 2003 on broadcast television. With uh, any given week, you wouldn't know where you'd find it on the uh, uh, what time or if it would be on that week because of football and other things. Then it was in reruns from 2003 to 2007 on Cartoon Network. But it was uh, it did so well there after a, a reboot of Family Guy, direct to DVD. The Fox Home uh, Television Network, a different part of Fox that was a little cleverer, the 20th century Fox uh, television portion, I guess, in the home port part, uh, commissioned four direct-to-DVD movies that later were then aired on Comedy Central, which then took over the syndication of the previously aired episodes. And then it's been uh, on Comedy Central since. They did 26 new episodes in 2010 and 2011. And the new season just launched uh, in middle of June with uh, two back-to-back episodes in the season premiere. So sort of crazy. And I had the opportunity for Boing Boing a few weeks ago to talk to David X. Cohen, 
uh, about the show. And, um, and he, you know, he laughs. It's amazing. He laughs through his tears. The show has not been continuously produced, you know, since 1999. It's been produced in fits and starts. But um, it's pretty amazing to have survived that long. And it's tribute, I think, to the great, um, the great fanship behind it. So anyway, that's the, that's where we got to here now. Um, so this week we'll talk about uh, the show more in depth, why we like it, some of our favorite episodes, the new episodes and, uh, and the future of Futurama. So um, Andy, I know that you're a big fan. You've, you're one of the folks who've been advocating for a Futurama uh, themed incomparable episode. What do you like about the show so much? Have you been a fan from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, you start off as a Simpsons fan, and so you just hear the same team that does The Simpsons is doing a new show. Oh my God, are you on board for that? But I really think that that Futurama surpassed The Simpsons, probably, and that's not a slam against The Simpsons. I think it's just because the writers and the producers they get a break, uh, an enforced break, unfortunately. But they, I, I think that they have had enough time to really develop the characters, time off to explore other things. And I do think that they invest far, far more in every episode than any writing staff on any other uh, animated series ever. Uh, every t- every time I'm at the end of a, of a really great episode, you're really aware of how they spurned every opportunity to take a shortcut. And on so many other shows, uh, they'll come up, the, there'll be an interesting idea they lead off with, and then it sort of peters out for five minutes and they jump off it and go into something else. I think that with Futurama, it's like they come up with a really bizarre idea, this really great Gilbert and Sullivan style idea, and then they sort of like stop that part of the creative meeting and they just sit around all day and think, well, what are the consequences of this? Like if 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 Bender really was able to create a 60% scaled down, ver- two 60% scaled down <laughs> duplicates of himself at will, what would eventually happen based on not only what we know about these characters, but also what we know about science? And they will play it out to the very, very, very end. I was watching a, a bunch of episodes over the past two or three days, and it really occurred to me that how many different times have we witnessed different characters or maybe the entire cast experiencing the entirety of the universe's evolution from start to finish i was i was i was watching one of my favorite uh shows a clockwork origin and w- once again here's another one where they get to watch everything uh for, for, from start to finish uh i was i was looking at uh, the late philip j fry in which they the professor invents a time machine that can only move forward and they have to watch the entire creation and death of the universe three times they have a, a beloved kind of ocd that said no 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 we can't skip anything if they have a time machine that only goes forward this is the only way they can possibly get back the science is wonderful but and and here again they're doing things in a really difficult way i i loved a, a clockwork origin because it starts off the way that you would assume that a very nerd geek oriented show would go as we're, we're going to talk about uh, protesters protesting the teaching of, of evolution and you're sort of clasping your hands, oh, great, they're going to really stick it to those people who want all the textbooks rewritten to say that, you know, the, that the universe was created 6,000, oh, they're going to really stick it to them. And by the end of the show, they're actually saying, well, actually, there's a possibility that creationism really exists. Maybe we shouldn't actually dismiss these people as idiots because there is a way that evolution and creationism can actually sit side by side. That is not only a difficult thing to do, it's a risky thing to do. It really is that idea that they always take the hard way out and they make it's so much better for all of that. Well, and I'd, I'd agree with that too. Is right, they see everything through to their conclusion. They don't make a cheap joke and and right. If and you know, I think another running joke in the show is, and everyone will agree, is that the number of times that Philip J. Fry dies, 
he dies and dies and dies. He beat Doctor Who, you know, and Doctor Who, the current uh, one of the current companions, Rory, uh, Rory dies many times, but I'm afraid Philip Fry has died. I don't know how many times for real and fantasies in, you know, with cloning and robots and reassembly. Well, he is a thousand years old, so. Yeah. Yeah, right. He's also he's also ancient. Right. He's a thousand. He's been frozen for a thousand years. I suppose at some point I should recap the, um, you know, for people who haven't seen the show, there may be some incomparable listeners. The show ostensibly uh, follows uh, Philip J. Fry, who's a pizza delivery boy on the eve of the turn of the millennium. It comes 2000. He falls into a cryogenic suspension chamber, is woken in the year 3000 uh, and meets up with his uh, many time great uh, nephew, uh, Dr. Farnsworth, who is a mad genius and uh, runs a delivery company, and hijinks ensue. He falls in love. Uh, so, uh, Dean, you've just watched the entirety of the show again. There are themes that emerge for you from watching the whole thing from front to back? Yeah, actually, there are a few things. Um, in particular, the way that they, the show changes after it's been canceled and brought back. Uh, and it... it like when they first come back, they take they they come back with I think season five. The I numbering guess. got weird too. So I think the four DVD movies or straight to DVD movies I think are all supposedly like sixteen episodes of season five mm-hmm. technically. Well, five on IMDb is the one with Jurassic Bark and uh, the Sting, the Farnsworth Par- Farnsworth Parabox, those types of things. Um, I think that's season. I think technically that's season four, isn't it? Or does it say season five? It says five on so IMDb. It's oh a little. Gosh. It's a little weird. But yeah, um, so, but I know what you mean. So it's a la- that was the last. Well, no, the Farnsworth paradox. This was the last. That was part of the season. That was oh, it's two thousand three. Yeah, it's one of the last ones. I realized I was looking at my favorite episodes, and several of them come from the end of the last broadcast run. And, and David Cohen said when we talked recently, he reminded me that. Um, the show was really canceled after season three and they had so many episodes in the hopper that the fourth season was bits and pieces of everything that they hadn't yet aired. So a lot of good stuff showed up there, but they were just trying to, they're running it out. If you look at the production numbers for those, they're like third, the third season of production and they aired in what was called the fourth season. And the fifth season was mostly the fourth season production. So it gets really confusing, especially when you're trying to rip your DVDs and then tag them, you have to try to figure out um, the, the DVDs have them in the production order, not in right. the running order. So it gets right. really confusing when you're watching them from the discs. It goes from being kind of like uh, jokes about the future and, and things like that to this really thinky season all of a sudden. And it gets very deep and it's talking about like, uh, you know, Fry's dog. And it's it's very emotional where his relation Fry's relationship with Leela grows grows a lot and it changes quite a bit and then it kind of it stops again there we're not guiding uh new watchers too is so Leela is the one-eyed uh we first think she's an alien in the early seasons turns out spoiler alert Leela is actually a mutant from the sewers underneath the city of New New York and uh she's the captain of the uh the Planet Express delivery ship that's run by owned by Dr. Farnsworth and Fry's love interest. Um, but she's always rejecting him, partly because Fry is kind of an idiot. He's sort of a Homer Simpson-grade idiot with an extreme streaks of cleverness and persistence. Uh, so uh, that's part of the running theme, right, is that this uh, the tension between whether they will actually become a couple or not. And he's right. more of a slob than Homer Simpson, actually. So 
He's got that going for him. He goes from just kind of being a slob and being uninformed to kind of being an idiot. And and Homer Simpson kind of does the same the same uh, traversal there, where he's just he becomes the butt of the joke on his unintelligence rather than his his ignorance or his like misunderstanding of situations. And and it's a subtle difference, but it's it's kind of disappointing, I think, to see him become like such a rube basically well wasn't that the problem in the simpsons too is that homer's intelligence varied from sort of sub neanderthal to like almost normal from episode to episode and sometimes he came up with brilliant business ideas and executed them and the same thing with fry like if you look at the episode um one of my favorites the devil's hands are idle playthings in which fry does a deal with the devil and um composes this opera this uh, holographic opera but he has the ability to compose an opera he didn't get any extra intelligence he just got the hands you're like wait a minute he has such a sensitive soul and intelligence to compose this you know lyric work and yet he can barely tie his shoes or remember to swallow his right. uh, other episodes. I, I think he's, he's more like Homer Simpson without the uh, w- without the ability to get completely distracted and unfocused because he's, he's 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 your basic guy in his you know early to mid 20s where he hasn't found his life's goal yet he hasn't found that drive and ambition I don't think he's an he's a super idiot he's just a little bit a uh, bit of a surface surface intellect, let's just say. But 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 once he once he realizes that something has to be done, he's going to work it out. He's going to get it done. We've we've seen so many Futurama episodes where he is absolutely dedicated, focused, and devoted. And yes, he, yes, he he has faith that he has a pair of lucky pants that gets him through <laughs> any situation. My but the, but but yeah, but the, but but then you realize that the writers actually like and appreciate that because he's one. And there's there's an episode in which they need to evacuate the Earth. There's an escape ship with a limited number of seats on it. The government creates a machine that will evaluate how valuable each person is, to, whether they're worthy of this thing or the, to go on there. The professor's, oh, old old man, probably going to die soon anyway. Brilliant, brilliant inventor. Pass. Here's your ticket. <laughs> Delivery boy. No, no, no valuable skills. Pass. Here's your ticket. I like your pants. Yay! <laughs> His really major accomplishments, though, are hugely motivated by Leela. Like, him, yeah. his love for Leela, like overcomes all these ridiculous like uh, detriments that he has. He rearranges the stars for her. He uh, lets her onto the spaceship. There, he he's in he's in this in the sting. He's going to die basically because you know he he throws himself in front of this bee that's this wild bee that's coming at them. Most of the thing his his when he's really at his best, it's in the defense or in the wooing of this counterpart character. He, well, he's, that's the thing is he's just so um, he's completely selfless. A lot of the time, like he's gets freaked out and does things, but I think it's, he's a weird character in that, um, that he's willing to always right throw himself, whatever to do anything. He gives up. There's an episode in which uh, it's the one in which the <laughs> spaceship gets a new personality that uh, with the Sigourney Weaver's voice, love and rocket and fuel, I love think. and <laughs> love and rocket. And, Love and Rocket, and there's a bit, of course, where they're recreating part of the scene from 2001 and disabling Hal, and they're floating in this airless space in spacesuits, pushing out cans of slurm, which are like memory core <laughs> units, and popping them open. And uh, Leela's oxygen tank runs empty, and Fry, without telling her, pops his hose into hers so that he might die, so she can live. And you just and there's a thousand incidents like that in the show, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, um, I think we should talk favorite episodes before we get too far along. I think we've introduced some of the basic concepts and characters of the show. Um, and John, I think we've 
pointed at you least. So I think you should come up. What's one of your favorite episodes of this program? Well, you mentioned Phil Lamar a second ago, and uh, the main voice that he does is Hermes Conrad, who is the uh, Rasta bureaucrat who sort of runs the office and does all the paperwork and everything. And, and he's definitely one of my favorite characters. And there's uh, an episode called how Hermes requisitioned his groove back. And <laughs> yes. the, you know, the, the title, the title alone is great because it makes you think of the, the, the movie, how Stella got her groove back. But uh, it's, it's just this really fun episode with, you know, him and he's so excited about being a bureaucrat and there's, you know, the, the whole society is so bureaucratic and they have numbers and, you know, you, you get promoted, your number gets lower. And, and I, I just love the beginning of the episode They're, They have these, you know, pneumatic tubes and he says, um, Oh, look, it's a letter from the central bureaucracy. And it says, attention, Hermes comrade, you're about to receive a letter from the central bureaucracy. And then he gets the letter from the central bureaucracy. I, you know, it's just this whole thing, and it's very, um, it's very Brazil-like um, in the whole. Uh, th- this this whole thing comes together, and uh, you know, Fry has uh, an affair with the bureaucrat who comes to inspect the office, and then Bender finds out. So to cover her tracks, she removes Bender's brain, which is in, his entire personality fits on a three and a half inch floppy disk, <laughs> and she puts it in the tube, and it disappears, and they have to go find it. And it's just just this great thing where he goes and he has to sort this entire gigantic inbox, master inbox pile in four minutes. And it turns into this big song and dance routine. And he's doing this ska number and there's limboing and everything. And it's just one of my favorites. And and, and the best part is, uh, you know, near the end, he finishes everything. And the, the number one bureaucrat, who's number 1.0, says something like, uh, yeah, you know, you finished, you did a great job but you finish with two seconds to spare and a good bureaucrat never finishes anything early. So I'm demoting you something like that. And it's just one of, one of my favorite because Hermes is just such a great character. And that's that, that one sticks in my mind. I realize we haven't explained Bender to listeners who are not, don't know the show. And uh, maybe Dean, you should take a crack at what, what is Bender? Who is Bender? Bender is a robot designed to bend girders. He's like a manufacturing or construction robot. But he, in the very first episode, he's going to go commit suicide with, uh, he tries to get a double suicide in a suicide telephone booth. It's a suicide booth that's shaped exactly like a telephone booth. And Fry is trying to place a call. So they, uh, he's there to go commit suicide. And uh, he and Fry wind up sort of intertwined and becoming good friends because they decide not or Fry sort of helps Bender decide not to commit suicide. And uh and they later on uh Bender uh electrocutes his antenna on a broken light bulb and his programming is all changed. So he he has a lot more free will than the other robots and he can uh he can be lazy and not be totally uh, committed to his programming. Yeah, he's the he's got a lot of the best um, taglines of the show, like "bite my shiny metal ass," of course, <clears throat> smoke cigars, alcohol is necessary to his proper functioning naturally. So, uh, Andy, tell me, tell me, sir, 
What is one of your favorite episodes of Futurama? I got to go back to something I mentioned during when that, that other episode you're, ta- you're talking about, we, uh, our favorite uh, nerdy uh, TV shows. Previously on The Incomparable. Yeah. I love the Godfellas episode so much. I mean, it really, it really is one of my favorite episodes of television. Full stop. What happens is that uh, Bender gets shot into space irretrievably, and he's leaving the leaving the universe. He's just completely stranded. And the the premise is that there are like microbes that like sort of clung to his body. And as as happens so often in the show. Uh, Bender, of course, gets to witness the entire rise and fall of an entire new civilization because these tiny, tiny microscopic beings go through evolution on on his chest plate. And, of course, they're worshipping him as a god because he is their entire planet and he has a face and he can actually say, OK, now you're going to now you're going to grow crops and, and, and figure, figure out how to brew me some beer. <laughs> and the and as is going to happen, they they become into two different factions of society disagreeing on how to please bender and bender because he's bored starts off by being the god but then also starts off by being stopping the angry god and saying oh well okay i guess i can say if you're praying to me to save your kid okay i'll i'll try to save your kid uh, how about if i if i get if i put some more water here to give you some to, to give make your crops flourish and then of course he winds up flooding out the entire village he gets to see everybody die and there are wars on his chest and he's trying to stop and trying to help things and finding himself in these increasingly futile situations. And the B story, what a wonderful B story. Fry showing the sort of care for his friends that is a, that is a constant for his character. He, he knows that his friend is gone, but he's, he must be out there somewhere. So he conducts this huge, huge search to try to find Bender and get him back. So, But at the end of Bender's story, he's... Now he, his, the entire civilization on his on, on his uh, on his robot torso has died out, killed each other, and he's actually a lot sadder than you imagine he would be, given he's such a selfish <laughs> individual. And he winds up at the end of the universe to this sort of sentient cloud of whatever, fill in the blank. And the subtext is that this could be this cloud is could actually be the god of our universe. When do you see a show like this? Actually, any show. Period that tries to tackle a spiritual topic without making it endlessly dreary like touched by an angel or any other you know intentionally uplifting or spiritual or god oriented show i thought the early shows including this one they have sometimes you know there's there's always the a and b story thing right that's a traditional sitcom or short story you know and works in a lot of different kinds of theater and television but you've got a main story is the a story that's kind of the thing you're supposed to be paying attention to then often subsidiary characters have a b story and if you're really lucky there could be a c story with even like less going on and futurama Mm -hmm. sometimes had a d and e story there are episodes i can think of where um you know i'll say well here i'll i'll uh segue into one of my favorite episodes is the one in which um fry it's called 300 big boys it's the one in which fry decides to drink 300 cups of coffee there's a it's a (laughs) play on george uh W. Bush's rebate uh, early in his administration, the Nixon, who is president, of course, in the future, is Nixon's head, head in a jar. Uh, he decides to take a, uh, a windfall from one of the uh, inept captains of the uh, dupe was Zap Brannigan. Zap Brannigan, a voice originally intended to be voiced by Phil Hartman Phil before Hartman. he passed away, but but still very well, very confidently done. So Zap Brannigan, they defeat some space spiders and take all their booty, all their gems and tapestries, and so Nixon 
issues a three hundred dollar uh, rebate to everybody, and Fry says, "I'm going to buy three hundred cups of coffee." And across the episode, he does it. So in that episode, I love this because there's a romance going on between Kiff Zap Brannigan's uh, second in command, his long suffering amphibian second in command, and uh, one an Amy who's uh, one of the Delivery Express uh, employees, who's the daughter of the richest man. And, think in the uh, galaxy who owns most of Mars and uh, they've got a romance brewing. Uh, Fry's trying to do something for Leela. There's a whale involved. Everyone's got different things going on. Ben, uh, uh, the professor uses uh, stem cells to look young and falls in love. So you've got, I think four or five different romances going on. You've got Zoidberg trying to figure out what the secret of life is or happiness. Uh, and at one point Hermes has bought uh, his son, these, you know, uh, bamboo stilt boots, and they get stuck on these boots that take them running through town. And the whole thing is this crazy set of different plots, and it comes together at the end. They're all in one place at this reception where they're showing off all the booty from the uh, space spiders that they've stolen. And Hermes comes in, sets fire to the tapestry, it lights on fire, the the windfall is destroyed, everything's burned up, everyone's life is in danger, and Fry drinks his 300th cup of coffee. And I think it is one of the most beautiful moments across all the series of the show, where this, ah, ah, this music starts, and Fry's <laughs> consciousness expands, and time slows down, and he very confidently and serenely, he looks out the window, and there's a hummingbird, and you can see its wing is slowly flapping. <laughs> and he takes everybody out of the uh, of the fire takes them all outside. They have no idea what happened. But I mean, I I really think I don't know. Either there was a G and an H and an I plot in that, and they pulled it together. And it was hilarious and it was beautiful. And um, and I think it's something that maybe you need the the uh, lack of limitations in animation to pull that off. Like, could you do that in in a a series in which you had actual physical actors where you wouldn't there just would be enough time to make everything happen so perfectly. It's uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that, that episode was based off of uh, the Bush rebate. I, I hadn't really thought about that. I, I've, I've, I've been watching these so much later, and uh, I was like nine when the show started. <laughs> <laughs> so. What are you, 14 now? No. <laughs> Dean, Dean is a young, young man. Yeah, well, you're making us all feel yeah, really 22. old. Um, so, the, yeah, I, I guess we never really, I, I don't know, it's never come up before, but, um, no one's ever asked you. Well, that's, entire and, and I, this podcast and I, is oh, over. a gentleman never asks and a lady never tells. That's so, right. uh, I, I've actually been kind of disappointed in the, the new ones because they rely, I mean, I'm, so I was going to mention this when you were talking about Godfellas, um, where they're making this really beautiful, poignant, uh, point there and it's and it's relevant to a lot of different things today and but it's not really about any particular um any particular instance or any particular thing in in the present day and i feel like the new episodes really very heavily uh rely on current things going on like yo lila lila the da vinci code proposition infinity proposition infinity is a good right i mean that's that play on the california proposition about legalizing or banning uh, or, or invalidating uh, same-sex marriage, right? They made that relatively quickly after Proposition 8. Right. Uh, of course, Infinity being 8 on its side, 
that's a joke. But they, you know, they don't shy from. Um, I was asking David about this when uh, I did the interview and said, you know, you they seem to actually be willing to address and engage political controversy because, like all good parodies, it's through the lens of something that's so ridiculous they can get away with it. Where maybe hitting it directly on would be seen as much too controversial for um, you know comedy programming or something. I mean, besides like uh, late night uh, stand up comics, right the early episodes that that approach these kinds of issues like a big piece of garbage where a a <laughs> giant ball of garbage that at some point shortly out i think it's like 2000 uh, uh like the 2200s or something like that they shot all the garbage from new york into space and now in the year 3000 it's coming back and it's going to crush it's going to crush the city or crush the world even they're approaching that issue in in this uh, very broad sense, and you know what is what is it going to be like in the in so far in the future? And I think that Proposition Infinity is kind of a little too close to that, and it's a little too close to its own issue, and uh, a Clockwork Orange origin too, um, where they're having these issues where it's about robots, but uh, you know a thousand years in the future, maybe they should have even gotten further beyond that at this point. You know, robots have been around for quite a while, and they might be able to move beyond it somehow and have some sort of even bigger issue. Yeah. Some of them won't age as well too. Although it's, it's sort of hilarious to say current affairs. I realize, um, you know, when you look at the, some of the most common guest actors on the guest voices on the show include Al Gore. <laughs> it's a rare show. That's the case. Now his, one of his children was, um, was an assistant on the show. I, I don't know if she still is for a period of time. Um, and that certainly helped, but um, he's, you know, he likes, uh, they, they did a cartoon, Bit for his um, inconvenient truth. There's a, a cartoon bumper that they did for it, but he's always on. You know, he's always on talking about being the emperor of uh, Mars and um, global warming, inventing the internet. I mean, he makes fun of himself pretty tremendously on the show, and it's and is in some fairly key episodes. So there is a there is a tendency to have a, you know just like having Al Gore on as a guest voice to have a sense of contemporary politics. Um, uh, there's another issue of the show. I think that um, it brings people back again and again is, you know, we like individual episodes. There's ones we'll dozens we can call out. I think there's a complexity to the show, the, um, the detail and attention they take to, to it. Most times I was remembering, I just had to look this up because I remembered that uh, from the very first episodes, they designed multiple languages to be used in the show. And one is a, a simple um, substitution cipher. So it's just, you know, every letter in, in Latin is substituted with the, or, uh, the Latin alphabet is substituted with a symbol. But then there was also an uh, alphabet that I think they waited for people. I remember reading uh, David Cohen back years ago talking about this. They put it in there and they figured that people would freeze frame their VCRs at the time and then later their DVRs and DVDs and um, sort out how to decode the second alphabet. If I, it's a uh, Wikipedia says it's a modular addition code where the next letter is given by the summation of all previous letters plus the current letter. But I believe it also has code inside it. So you can't just, uh, it's not just substitution. Uh, and then they also use other languages. There's, a, there's an episode in which they wander in uh, uh, to a robot mitzvah. And um, it's the, in Hebrew, it says today I am a robot, of course, in a banner, because why wouldn't it be in, while they're hoisting the robots and spinning them around. But there are other details you all notice um, when you watch the show, you, you say, oh, wow, they're really paying attention to this and making this universe and making it consistent. Yeah, like when they, they did that, uh, that uh, episode in which uh, there's a body swap machine in which you can swap bodies with somebody else 
uh, but only if that person had never been body swapped before. And so hi, hijinks ensue as as the the crew wind up like tricking each other because they want to do stuff and tricking each other again to I don't I don't want to I don't want to be in Bender's body. Let me be in this other guy's body. And so the solution to it, of course, uh, the professor figures out a mathematical equation to determine how many bodies would, how many swaps would it take to to put everybody back where they belong, involving fewer than X number of people who had never been swapped before. And there's the the the, the formula, the, the the calculation, and the proof is on screen for maybe all of like a second and a half, but it turns out that yes, that is actually absolutely correct because one of the writers on that show has a doctorate in mathematics and he actually proved this theorem to the satisfaction of everybody in the writer's room because this is the sort of show where someone is going to say, uh, excuse me, uh, clearly you're doing a regressive sum algorithm there. When Yeah, the scientists and, and space nuts and, uh, and uh, oh, David Cohen was uh, getting pursuing a PhD in mathematics when he got tapped for the Simpsons and had to, you know, leave academia. There was a first season episode in which, uh, uh, Fry is, gets a little bit homesick. And when he finds out that you can actually take tourist flights to the moon, so oh, this is great. I could actually be where like Apollo 11 landed. And, and of course he lands there and finds they, they, they go there and it turns out to be more like a, like a, like a Disney world theme park. You're on the moon, but it's like a Disney world version of the moon. And they wind up just sort of like breaking out of the the place to actually go to the lunar surface. And they actually come upon the Apollo 11 landing site. And uh, I, I remember reading a story about this, that in the in the episode, you actually see the 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 uh, descent stage and the ascent stage both together on the on the surface of the moon. When, of course, any nerd would know that actually it's only the descent stage that would be back that was left Ooh. there. The, the the crew went back into the ascent stage, but then took off and re, and redocked uh, with with a command module. And so I, I remember reading that there is actually a last minute edition was like a plaque <laughs> that they, they didn't have time to reanimate the entire thing. But they had enough time to put in like a little plaque on the thing. said ascent stage uh, restored here by by <laughs> by 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 uh, I think it was by by generous grant from the nitpickers of America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I mean, there's you know another running element of the show is this the number of um of things that are so unpleasant and beyond the pale that you're surprised you'd ever see them on television. And they try to make them funny. Like Bender is so incredibly immoral. I think it's on one of the DVD commentaries that when they uh, shot the episode Hell is Other Robots, which is one of the great things in Hell is Other Robots, which was in this ninth episode. Oh, it's in the first season. That's right. It introduces the robot devil, who is a terrific character who recurs. But um, later, the robot devil spins a wheel in, a, in a, the fourth season that has a list of every robot on the show. And you realize there are hundreds of thought out characters, hundreds of thought out robots, not to mention human characters and aliens who appear. But uh so the um, that I think it was Hella's other robots because there's a bit in it where Leela and Fry get tired of Bender, who's re- experienced a religious conversion and has now become incredibly straight laced and dull, and is drinking mineral oil instead of alcoholic spirits, <laughs> and they sort of miss his thieving, whoring, and and obscenity and his amoral behavior. So they get him off the straight and narrow, and. I think it's from the DVD commentary where they mention, um, yeah, we had a staff member who wouldn't work on this show. She had moral objections to it. She just found it, you know, too vile, and they had to. They essentially supported her in that decision. But uh, I mean, could you think of that, fellas? It's like that. Um, the number of things that are just like I like the robot or uh, uh, Santa Claus, the evil Santa Claus, the future um, suicide booth. You know, what what do you think about the the fact that they push the envelope on? 
kind of acceptable things by wrapping them in this way. Yeah, there's a, just last week was was it one of the uh, new season episodes in which uh, every time Fry takes so Leela, take my hand, Leela, some disaster happens. And right, a farewell it's to a little, arms. It's a little bit out there. The last the last season, she he's rescuing her off of a doomed planet. The take my hand, Leela, and takes a hand, and then winds up ripping off her arm at the socket. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the, then, like ten seconds later, his own arm gets ripped off by the socket as well. <laughs> the last scene of the two ripped off arms swirling in space with pretty music playing underneath it, <laughs> which, is, which, was, is kind of, which is lovely, exactly. Uh, it Sweet, was lovely, but yeah. Well, hey, let's talk about you know. I realize we should talk about the new season. Is um, you know, one of the things uh, David said in the interview. He said they're going to. I think there's this tacit acknowledgement. I mean, we let's we could talk about this a bit. Is I thought. Season, I think it's numbered six, the 26 episodes that were aired in 2010 and 2011. I felt they were weak compared to the first four broadcast seasons. I, I felt like I didn't feel that richness of multiple plot elements. Of the inter- I thought some of them were had a very thin idea and extended it. And some I quite liked. There were some that I thought were terrific, like the creationism, evolutionism, uh, evolution parody um, that made us sort of rethink aspects of it when presented in that light. But do you, do you think that, uh, does anyone think that that was the case of the first, or do you think, no, the last two, you know, effective seasons, the 2010, 2011 episodes were as strong as the first four? I think that it's interesting because like you're, you're looking at this show about a guy who's frozen in time for a thousand years and then he comes back to life. And then the show is sort of stopped and comes back to life. And when Fry comes back to life, it's like this, oh, my God, everything is, you know, look at all these wonderful things out here. And, and I have to take full advantage of it. And in the new seasons, I feel like they're they they're also trying to take full advantage of their their re-given time, I guess, and trying to like cram almost cram as much in there as possible. And like it's it's much faster paced. They're bringing back like lots and lots of characters in for even like small parts, like Zap Brannigan appears for like a minute or two in the latest episode here, where he's uh, he's piloting this this spaceship and he's just kind of thrown into it almost. And they they're forcing these jokes and making like I you know just kind of pushing things a little too far. And maybe you know if they relaxed a little bit, they'd kind of be able to uh, get back to where they were. Get back into their stride a little bit. I think. What do you think, John? Were you uh, were you a bit, as big a fan of the earlier, later ones? Do you have do you find a, a substantial differences between them? Yeah, the you know the those first four or five seasons, whatever you want to call them, um, had a had a, a different feel to them. They felt a little bit richer and and in some ways um, more. There was a lot of sweetness to some of them. Um, like, you know, we talked about that devil's hands are idle play things and the sting. And then one of the other ones, like the luck of the Fryish, which is about the the history of, you know, Fry thinking that his brother stole his identity and did all the things he wanted to do. And you get these flashbacks and it's, it was, you know, some really sweet stuff where you see like the emotion around, around Fry and that stuff seems like it's either missing or forced in the, in that last season and and the the first two that that um aired last week i thought the first one where bender has um has a, a kid was pretty strong the bots and the bees and then the one after that that the one with the arms twirling off into space that one kind of left me cold i just never really felt like it got going so it feels more like these the the previous season and starting with this that they're kind of hit or miss and that 
the other ones, maybe it's a nostalgia thing, you know, because they were so long ago already. But those other ones seem like classic and they seem like there's so much richness in them. And you can go back and watch them over and over again. Whereas those the, that last batch, they really don't they don't feel quite the same. I mean, they're still fun to watch, but they don't feel like they're quite the same. It's kind of hit or miss where you get some episodes that are good and some that are really not very memorable. And I felt like the the older ones you know, there, there wasn't a lot of throwaway. It's probably, you know, they probably had lots of really good ideas at the beginning and lots of stuff to put in and, and you you get to a point where, where you're maybe forcing it a little bit. Well, you know, it felt like I I agree with you that I thought there was, I mean, that thing uh, saying at the outset that I think this is, um, has the most heart of any, of almost any show. I mean, you see this in some long running sitcoms where even if the show is sort of farcical or nonsensical, they've figured out a way to have a relationship or a kind of sensibility and friendship at the middle that makes it work. And, um, you know, there's shows like MASH that are, you know, there was ridiculous parts, but it really was kind of a, a strong center show. And it's hard to think of an animated show that, that could be anywhere near this silly because there are a few that have that much heart. And you, you know, the relationship, like, you know, one of the, another of my favorite episodes would be uh, one I think I mentioned before is the uh, Devil's Hands are idle playthings, and in that, that was they thought that might be the last episode, as was so many times. David Cohen said that uh, Ken Keeler is one of the uh, main writers for the show. Ken has written all of the finale episodes of Futurama, and he's up to four now, <laughs> four last episodes for the show. And The Devil's Hands are idle playthings, I think, was uh, partially intended to be the end of the broadcast run. And there's this beautiful thing where, uh, you know, you, even though it's sort of, you know, he fries stupid and the whole thing is ridiculous is that, um, you know, he has this great love for Leela. She doesn't always believe and trust in herself. And she's not sure she's in love with him, partly because he's an idiot that comes up again and again, but partly because she's not sure that she trusts the way the intensity or the sincerity realism that he has in love for her. But this goes on over seasons. And in that episode, you know, he, he, um, it's a great uh, series of O. Henry swaps, essentially. Um, one of my favorite things about it is that they actually define over and over again, people call things ironic, which are not, and they keep getting called out, that's not ironic, that's not ironic, and then finally, in one of the final scenes, something ironic actually happens, and Bender reads a dictionary definition and says, now that's ironic. I thought they should <laughs> teach it in English classes. But but there is this, that thing that there is a love story that's very strong and sort of sustained. And then later episodes, it just seems to be kind of an element. Fry is always pursuing Leela, but whatever. Um, David said in, in that interview again uh, that they were intending, I mean, I think there's some awareness of this on the show staff because he said this season is going to be more like the early seasons. We're going to sort of go back and there'll be a long arc over 2012 and 2013 uh, which is centered around kind of finally resolving the Leela Fry relationship. And, and I don't know how that will materialize, but they've got 24 more episodes to work with that on. I hope they don't, I hope they don't prosecute that too, too strongly only because uh, there's so many shows I can't get into because there are deep, profound season long arcs. I, I can't get into game of Thrones. I can't get into so many other shows because I feel as though if I start now, I've got a lot of work ahead of me to get caught up, and then I'm sort of obligated to watch the rest of them. I do like the fact that Futurama exists. You can dip into almost any individual episode and pretty much get it. It's true. They have, I mean, they have some mythology, but not the same kind of thing as any other show. There's not really too much of an arc, you know, a season-long arc where Fry discovers, you know, the human beings were all invented on another planet. But, um, but there, you know, there are. 
there are consistencies. And there's, uh, you know, I was looking through Wikipedia for episode descriptions, and they talk about non-canonical episodes, which sort of cracked me up because, uh, you know, what is canonical in a cartoon universe in which anything can change? But I mean, there are things like um, Nibbler, the uh, Leela's little um, eye stock pet, turning out to be one of the masters of the universe, very much like um, the masters on uh, on Oa in the Green Lanterns, the uh, the people, the blue men who control the. Um, the safety of the universe, these little incredibly adorable creatures are in fact the ones who who make everything work and uh, and keep the universe from falling apart. Um, John, I know you're a music maven. What do you think about the music on the show? I, I've always loved it. Do you have you noticed it? Is it something that that strikes you? Um, how they how they use music as an element across the seasons? Yeah, I I, I mean I, I like um, especially in animated shows the the music and the sort of musical numbers and a lot of them go over the top like you know something like the simpsons or family guy uh do a good job with it but in uh, in futurama i i really do like it you know i mentioned that that first episode with the uh uh with with hermes doing his little his little ska song and it's funny i mean you mentioned it and now i'm drawing a blank to think of other musical examples from the show that, that I can't actually think of any right now, but but it is it does seem like such a big part of the of the show. And the, the Devil's Hands or Idle Playthings was one of the ones I think of the most because that had there was almost a musical. They had songs every few minutes, culminating with um, with uh, Fry's um, opera, his hollow opera uh, for Leela. Um, right, he learns to play the the, the holophoner. I think it's yeah. called. It's like a recorder basically, but it projects holograms. And he can only do it when he has the the devil's hands. Yeah, that's right. Because he needs he has stupid fingers. Apparently, no surprise. Um, so uh, you know, I think we've cycled through quite a bit about the show. What what have we what have we missed in this program? I mean, you know, we've we've been watching it. Obviously, all of us at some extent here for uh, I don't know how many episodes the show's had now. Maybe a hundred and twenty or something. We're getting up there between those seasons and. Um, you know, something that I look forward to. I try to watch uh, when each new episode comes out. What what still strikes any of you about, um, you know, why we're staying, why we stick with the show, even though it doesn't have, you know, episode or a uh, series long plots and things like that. What brings us back to watch this again and again? I mean, it touches on so many different uh, different things. It references Star Trek. It references uh, the Twilight Zone. It's it and it's and it's these deep references that you can't you kind of need to know what's going on where they're referencing very specific twilight zone episodes or something like that. And it touches these little things where like, yeah, I've spent all this time going back and, and looking at these different shows and, and, and trying to find out more about specific things. And you see it all reflected in this show where, um, you know, just because you understand these other these other things and it's kind of like, oh, you know, they get it, too. They they are also on the same wavelength and they've, they've also spent this time finding out about these different weird little corners of things uh, and appreciating them. I think it's just rich with illusion, right, as if you're a, if you're a geek. You can watch the show and everything seems to be, you know, oh, there's a reference to Omega Man. There's Logan's Run. There's that episode. There's To Serve Man. Uh, and then they even have the parody. They have the show. What's it? Andy, what's the name of the show? I know you'll know this. The um, Is it the the closing door, the parody of Twilight Zone? The uh, 
Uh, the scary door. The, the scary, scary door, door yeah. right. It's like, imagine a world in which there's a guy. No, wait, he has no eyeballs and he can't read anything. And, you know, it's just everything is everything is like that. Yeah, I'm sorry, Andy, I interrupted you before. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I was just going to say that I think that it's uh, the reason why I keep watching it is because they keep that level of quality way, 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 way up. They keep finding little nooks and crannies in which to put extra little jokes in there, not just clever witty sayings but also if there's a corner of the frame in which they can put in a keychain uh that's a souvenir keychain uh, that leela has from her trip to the moon saying i'm with stupid on the moon and you do have to f- sort of like you're watching on tv and say wait what did, what did i just miss then you re- scroll back in your dvr in order to get the joke uh it's it's not all about just catchphrases and pop culture references uh, and it also just comes down to the fact that they have well-defined characters, each one in that cast, and they have never decided to weaken that that sort of formula. They never weaken that sauce. They so this is true. I think of almost every single sitcom that's out there. Eventually, the producers and the writers they get just sort of into a punch the clock sort of mechanism where they no longer understand why this line is appropriate for this character but this other character would never say it they don't understand what the relations are between these characters they're all just but by the, the final episode by the final seasons of Seinfeld and Friends these are a cast these are five characters who get together every once in a while who don't like each other but they only get a, they only get together so they can they can like launch zingers at each other <laughs> and you, you don't understand why they keep doing this why do they keep meeting at a coffee shop every single day just to insult each other about some what are really some profoundly painful moments from their lives <laughs> you know so why, why do i keep coming here besides I've, this i've never thought like, about the show that way before i can't watch yeah, friends it's a, anymore it's a, no, it's, it's absolutely true it's but true. with with futurama not not every character is designed to have designed to be this really deep involved character but it, it is always about fry who profoundly cares about his friends leela who's responsible but is also kind of kind of weird herself hermes who's the bureaucrat who can figure out an analytical way to get things done the professor who is absolutely dotty but creative in a fantastically mad science way and, and, and will why never, not ever... and why not zoiberg then why yes. not Zoidberg? All right, they're heading Zoidberg less now. Things are out. everything's heading Zoidberg. Yeah, I mean that's a, that, that's, that's a that's a good that's a good distinct distinction. Why? One of the things I hate. Uh, there's such a you could do a whole episode of why I hate Family Guy because that, that's an hour of me talking and everybody are trying to interrupt. But, 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 but one, one of the one of the running one of the running things on the Family Guy is that everybody hates the the daughter Meg and they don't no one ever explains why they hate him hate her but always just nothing but hatred and incredibly caustic abuse toward her all the time zoidberg has that meg role on futurama but somehow they write it so cleverly that you just feel like well he's a kind of a stupid lobster guy who if you if you get your arm cut off he'll wind up sewing your leg back on its place he's kind of stupid he's a oh, yeah. he's a horrible smelly monster too and he's it's, it's always like yeah, he says he's a doctor, but he doesn't understand the human anatomy, and he's open, oh, what kind of girl are mouth. you? Open or... your mouth! No, your other mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Their first appearance. He's he's no, he's terrific because he's a sad sack, and he occasionally has his moments of victory. That's the thing is, occasionally he comes through and or has no who's in charge. Zoidberg's in charge now. Um, but yeah, that's the. Uh, I'll I'll tell you the th- the funny thing I think about Futurama is my wife is not a science fiction fan. Futurama is the only science fiction that she tolerates. She loves the show. We haven't watched as much of it lately because we don't have actual broadcast television anymore. So we have to go through 
you know, buying iTunes and Netflix and so forth to watch it more. But, uh, but it's, it's a show. I think the characters like Zoidberg, like the fact that um, there's so much in the show that's just, you know, there, there's things that are conventional, but uh, it doesn't have that because it doesn't take itself seriously. I think that's why she enjoys it more. So she doesn't necessarily get the layers of science fiction illusion because she didn't read sci-fi, but she, the show's fun. It's interesting and they have characterization. So it, it succeeds there. Yeah, and even though you know I love the major characters, the some of the minor characters I think are what make the show good because if you have if you have, you know, Morbo the alien newscaster <laughs> in there for a few seconds um talking about about how earth is doomed and then you have his peppy sidekick, you know, laughing it off or uh you know Calculon who is the the mm-hmm. robot uh soap opera star uh, you know, people like that. And then, and of course, you know, you can't forget Lur from Omicron Percy I-8. Uh, like the, those people, you know, they, they can be in an episode for a few minutes and they can kind of make, they can make or break it for me. And, you know, I love Bender and Leela and Fry and Zoidberg, but the, the, the little people, Nixon's head, you know, and like if they go to the head museum and, you know, the, just the stuff they can do with all the little side characters, um, it, it's what can make or break an episode for me a lot of the time. And that's what can keep it going. Cause if you throw in some of those, it's, it's like any other animated show where you have all these little side characters and, you know, they get their moment in the sun, but uh, there's just such weird, creepy and bizarre characters on here because there are so many aliens and, you know, with, with it being a thousand years in the future, you can pretty, pretty much do anything you want. I've kind of liked the fact that they don't make any default choices in the show. It, like nothing works the way that it should now. So, you know, when they like uh, the bugalo, I love the bugalo that suddenly they go to Mars and it turns out Mars, you know, half of Mars is a ranch owned by Amy Wong's family. And, um, you know, this is the Wong place, right? That's where they wind up. And it's, and of course, so the cattle, people are eating giant bugs, these sort of ladybug like things that are marked like cattle. It's like nothing, it's not necessarily as nothing is normal. It's more like, they never take the easy choice of just saying, okay, we're going to make it a parking meter. This is going to be a parking meter that talks, or there's the running gag that Nibbler, when Nibbler takes a number two, that he poops dark matter. And that's what they use to fuel the ship. And one of the, my favorite throwaway lines of as a, a prize out walking Nibbler, he uh, lands a steamer and the police come to write him up for a citation. They say, pick that up. And he says, but it weighs as much as 200 sons. And just little, <laughs> little clever bits like that. You know, you're never... It just nothing is ever quite what it seems. The robots have robots to help them out, or the greeting cards. The greeting cards have a chip in them that that mom of uh, mom's robots can um, mom the evil mother there. She can uh, activate a switch and greeting cards along with all the other robots on the planet uh, must do her bidding. It's just uh, there's never there's never a default basic easy choice made in the show. Maybe that's the theme of the show. They don't make the easy choices. Well, let's not forget the real reason we all watch Futurama. Hypnotoad. Hypnotoad. <laughs> I knew I knew that was coming. <laughs> it had to be said. Dean is under his power. Oh. Hypnotoad is the greatest throwaway character that didn't get thrown away of all time. Let's just let's just replay what just happened here. One person set up a line. The second person knew exactly what the one he was talking about <laughs> by by making a sound effect. A third person recognized the sound effect. <laughs> and I'm too hypnotized to speak. Oh, it was it's a great bit. The best part is on you know it's a DVD extra on one of the early season DVDs is everybody or everyone loves Hypnotoad and it's uh, David described it as 22 minutes of show for five minutes of payoff. 
Um, and it's just <laughs> Hypnotoad staring with some various dialogue and so forth that comes. You have to watch the whole thing. Not only you can fast forward it through, you'll miss some of the dialogue, but it's the most popular <laughs> show on television. Everybody loves Hypnotoad. <laughs> but that's, I don't know, that's what's great about the show is like they can throw in the thing that's the most absurd thing in the world. Then you have these little romantic situations and it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't play funny. You know, one thing we didn't talk about <laughs> sort of hilarious with a show like this, the voice talent. I mean, they have some of the best voice talent um, of any show that's ever been assembled, I think too. You got Billy West, who's you know, the original, uh, who uh, uh, was original Stimpy, and then had to do Ren after John Crickfalusi was cut from Ren and Stimpy show. Um, John Billy West has done, uh, you know, hundred million voices plus a long run in the Howard Stern show, and uh, he's got his own band. He's a fascinating guy, really nutty fella, but um, I mean, he's one of the best voice talents. You've got Phil Lamar, the Green Lantern, and Samurai Jack's voice, and. Uh, Tress McNeil, who's the voice of a million, million women on the show and on any animated show I think you listen to, there's Tress somewhere. Um, any favorite, anybody have favorite voices from the show that you go like, that's what I'm really listening for, like Frank Welker or someone like that? <laughs> it's, 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 if, it's, if it's one, it has to be Zap Brannigan. <laughs> Once we do that, all the dominoes will, will fall over like a house of cards. That's Billy West, Check right? Me. He's doing Zap yeah. Brannigan. Right. And yeah. you can so you can you're right. You could totally hear Phil Hartman's voice doing that character. It's it's West's tribute to right to him, <laughs> but uh, you know, and it's funny too. I mean, you get Katie Segal, who's a major, um, you know, she's a major sitcom star, and uh, she, you know, she's doing one voice in the show, and she's been involved all along. Or Lauren Tom, who does a lot of animation voice, but she comes in and does Amy Amy Wong and a few other voices. It's for, it's um they've got a just a or John DiMaggio. Oh, so here's the thing: you find out when you actually are in the room with John DiMaggio, the role of Bender, which you think of as this absurd, larger-than-life, ridiculous thing, it was written for John DiMaggio. <laughs> that was not a joke. He is Bender. He is the flesh version of Bender. So the episode of Futurama in which Bender is reversed, <laughs> the term the professor says, I've discovered a way to reverse, uh, you know, turn the process and demineralize, blah, blah, blah. And he turns Bender from a... Uh, in this fantasy scene from a robot into a human, that's pretty much what happened the other way around to make John DiMaggio into Bender. Not much doubt. There's a, uh, there's a great video on YouTube where this comic con has collected a bunch of voice actors from different TV shows, including Billy West and John DiMaggio and uh, a handful of other people. And they go, they have, they have the script of the first star Wars movie of, uh, episode four and they're going through the script of episode four with each of the voice actors doing different voices <laughs> and in each different scene they change all the voices so they're doing I mean, I they're doing bender Mark, they're Mark doing right it's it's amazing they do fry they do zoidberg they, they and it and it's the whole movie so it's like an hour and a half and it'll just oh it'll just blow your mind it's it's unbelievable that is perfect <clears throat> well, gentlemen, I think we've reached the end of the uh, of time. It's time to put our quarters on a string into the suicide booth and uh, and uh, sign off. So uh, any any final, any parting words, anyone? Good news, everybody. It's time to go to sleep. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll conclude. I'll conclude the broadcast day whenever you're listening to this show by thanking everyone. Thank you, Andy and Anka. We've broken the curse and we've been on a podcast together. Long may it sail. We've broken one curse and started a new one. Oh, my one. God. Oh, my God. Dean, it's well past your bedtime, young man. I think I think it's time to brush your teeth. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
pleasure. I know your love for the Hypnotoad. It's true. Yeah. And, well, and John, I hope we'll have you back on The Incomparable for future episodes of Things That Are Not Futurama. Thanks for being with us. If you'll have me, Glenn, I'll be on again. It'll, it'll happen. And thank you, dear listeners. Tell us what you like about Futurama in the comments. Send us feedback. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. The Incomparable.